1: You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson.
0: I'm back. I'm happy to say that after a six-month hiatus from recording new interviews, that I am back in action. And I am so pleased that Dr. James Taff is here with me today to discuss his new book, Christmas with the Tudors. James, welcome back.
1: Hi, Rebecca. Yes, thank you for having me back. And welcome back to you, too.
0: Thank you. I'm just excited that you're my first guest back. I the last time you were on here, we talked about Jane Boleyn and I think that was a lot of fun.
1: It was. It was. I mean, you actually did put me to task on some of those questions. You really did make me think, Oh, that's a good one. That's a good particularly about seamstresses, if you remember, and how long a, a garment at court might take to make up. But that's good. You're you you kept me on my toes and um no, I it was it was such a pleasure. So I'm I'm glad to be back.
0: Wonderful. Well, like I said, you're here today to talk about your new book, Christmas with the Tudors. And I just want to start with the most obvious of questions. What inspired you to write this book?
1: Oh, okay. Yes. I mean, it's going to be a really boring answer, I'm afraid, for your (laughs) listeners. But I just, I love the Tudors and I love Christmas. And I did not really need much of a push to do this. Um, It was sort of five years ago, maybe, that I first had the idea I was just researching for my phd didn't have time for anything else any other projects but i came upon a reference which i think it's hard to recall exactly what it was now but i remember thinking oh i'm gonna make a note of that and it was basically about a nobleman's christmas or one of the king's servants christmas or something I thought, oh christmas yeah tudors had christmas too of course they did so i made a little note and then i found another one maybe six months later and thought okay i might just you know sometimes you don't have the time to look at something and really think about it but you know it's good you know it's good material So I put a little note as well. And before I knew it, I had a list of really good references for a Tudor Christmas. And then this year I began thinking about because my my kind of background and my expertise is in servants and royal service particularly the um, servants in the Tudor royal households, and it made me think actually the servants work so hard through Christmas, like they they perform so many different roles and are so present that Christmas actually seemed like a really good case study to consider for the role of servants at the Tudor court. So that's sort of where the research began being more Christmas focused, and then I got a bit carried away, and (laughs) I sort of thought, well, Maybe an entire book wouldn't be such a bad prospect. Once I found enough material that I thought I could fill it out, um, I didn't really need asking twice. I thought this was a great idea.
0: It was a fantastic idea. And I felt like it opened my eyes to so many things that maybe I didn't understand about what Christmas looked like for the Tudors. We're so used to how we celebrate now that sometimes I think we forget it was so much different back then than it is now.
1: Absolutely, yes. I mean... That was one of the things that struck me, actually, because I have read a little bit, maybe an article here or there about what Tudor Christmas would be like. But it was always very generic and very vague, didn't really distinguish it from a medieval Christmas particularly. And the sources were basically non-existent. So I actually didn't think this was possible. I didn't think it was possible to go back and find specific examples of Christmas because a lot of these articles that I read online were just guesswork. Um, And a lot of them did focus on the idea of, well, when did this tradition start and when did this tradition start? And the truth is the Tudors did not innovate that many traditions. A lot of them are from pagan origins and a lot of them are from medieval origins. But what makes the Tudors in particular worth looking at is while they do absolutely have some traditions which we would not recognize today. And similarly, they would not have recognized some of our own traditions like decorating a Christmas tree. um, It was fascinating to see how much overlap there was with the modern day, because they had very much the same concerns and the same anxieties, maybe, about Christmas. And the example I use in the book to sort of introduce that to the reader is um, a letter from Bishop John Vesey to Cardinal Wolsey. He's essentially in charge of the Princess Mary's household and needs to know how it should be conducted over Christmas. And the reason I just love the source is it's basically a letter where the bishop Becomes a little bit, you can sort of tell he's exasperated at the thought of having to prepare. There's so much to prepare. We have to worry about whether or not Mary should serve food, whether or not she's going to entertain guests, whether or not she's going to give any gifts. And the list essentially resembles our own ideas and our own thoughts and preparations for Christmas, too. And that's when it sort of clicked for me. I thought the readers are going to recognize something in this, that it's their Christmas, the Tudor Christmas was not so different from ours.
0: Right, no, you had mentioned the letters that you were finding, and I loved these little tidbits, the little pieces from history that we got to look at. And one of my favorite letters, and I wanted to get this out of the way right away because I just thought it was hilarious. Um, The letter from a gentleman to William Cecil, and oh my
1: yes, I love it. The
0: threat he (laughs) made to him. Will you please tell the audience about that because I just thought that was hilarious when I when I read it.
1: You know, this is probably my favorite anecdote from the book too. It, there are a few, and it's difficult to choose. But this one, I was so excited when I read it. I actually I had to reread it because it's dark humor, which is which is <laughs> a man after my own heart, Sir Philip Harvey. He was the way he writes was it made me burst out laughing. But essentially, he's writing an invitation to Sir William Cecil and asking him to come to Christmas to bring his wife and to bring other members that they know of a company. But essentially he's so determined to get Cecil to come to Christmas that he basically threatens to burn him in his house if he doesn't come. And it's Clearly intended in jest, I rush to add, but it's brilliant. And Cecil excuses himself and says he probably won't be able to come except for maybe an afternoon or something. So Harvey writes again and says, no, 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 you must come for the entire Christmas. And he's really determined to have in in his eyes, the perfect Christmas would be friends and family and all this merry company. So much so that he is going to send a mob around his house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and set fire to it if he doesn't come I mean of course you wouldn't but that's my kind of humor and I loved it I thought it was a fantastic I'm glad you liked it too because that's definitely my favorite
0: oh I laughed so hard when I read that and I immediately made a note and said I have to talk to James about this because who would have expected anything like that
1: Absolutely. You know, it made me think, I, ho- I hope there's more like that in the material. I don't know how mm. I would begin to find it, but that dark humor, just that human element of the Tudors, when they come through, it's such a joy to read.
0: It is. I really enjoyed it as well. One of the things that I have always felt is so important when you are researching a topic is that you really understand What was going on in the world at that time, and maybe not even in the world, let's say in this instance, what was happening in the bigger picture in England, that it's not just people and how um, they got executed or who they married and that stuff. It's understanding a broader scope. I hope I'm making sense here. Right. Right.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm with you.
0: One of the things um, in my research with Thomas Seymour is I've learned how important it is to understand more things, not just his life, but the people around him and what every day looked like. And I think one of the things that I have struggled with was Christmas and understanding when they're talking about 12th day or Twelfth day, what exactly are they talking about? And your book explained that to me in a way that I felt maybe I didn't understand it before. So in America, we celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, Right. And so right. th- that's the 12 days leading up to Christmas. But in Tudor times, it was actually different, wasn't it?
1: It was. It was. I mean, of course, everyone has their own traditions, whether they've been developed by their own family or, as you say, regionally, depending on where you live and where you've grown up. The Tudors celebrated something which they sometimes refer to as Tide or Uh, twelfth tide which was essentially the 12 days of christmas but to them lasted from christmas day on the 25th of december to the feast of the epiphany or 12th night on the 5th of january and essentially throughout all 12 days there were all kinds of celebrations um, and also of course religious observance so essentially they um have our, our what we how we celebrate our christmas day and perhaps the days running up to it uh, when we start decorating the house or baking cookies or something like that they really waited until christmas day to kick off the celebrations and the period preceding that was advent um which for the tudors was marked by fasting and their houses would not have been adorned with all sorts of decoration as they did until christmas eve at the earliest and they would have set aside the kinds of foods which um, they were thought were rich, um, like cheese, meat, and eggs, for things like soup and fish. And um, to be honest, there's a, a few examples in the book about how how that's different and how how it doesn't. That's that's really quite striking. But to me, I, I always think. 12 days of celebrations I'm exhausted just thinking about it (laughs) I am so tired after Christmas day I am I I love the Christmas season soon as December hits I'm right there I'm decorating my tree and I'm getting you know I'm getting I'm baking some mince pies or something but realistically 12 days of celebration must have been hard work so maybe they knew what they were doing when they had more of a sober restrained time right up until Christmas day
0: Right. Not, not only hard and expensive.
1: Oh, expensive. Yes, <laughs> okay. absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things that really comes across, especially for Tudor royals and nobles, because they not only had to, say, give gifts to one another or to hold um, banquets, but they, they opened up their houses and their courts for for their communities and for their tenants and their neighbors. And so they the expense of not just holding their own Christmas, but celebrating Christmas with their affinity, the people who were around them, courtiers and counsellors. And it wasn't just family, it was friends as well. That it, You do get an impression from the sources that it was expensive. And there are a few little anecdotes which I particularly like. The one that's jumping out to me is there's a clerk who, who works in um, Princess Elizabeth's household. Uh, I don't remember the year off the top of my head, but essentially he is tasked with explaining why Elizabeth's household is spending so much. And it's why they're spending so much in December and January. And the, and he essentially has to write up this report, this account, which explains that, of course, we're going to be burning more charcoal. And of course, we're going to be feeding more people. It seems a bit redundant. Why, he, why does he have to say it? Of course, it's Christmas. We're spending <laughs> all this money and Elizabeth is incurring all these extra charges because her honor is dependent on how she celebrates Christmas and how and who she invites and and of course all of the gifts that she has to give and the people she has to feed as well. So yes, expensive it was
0: some of the traditions that they had, I would love for you maybe to go into them a little bit. Could we start with what the Lord of Misrule was?
1: Absolutely yes. so this is probably my favorite tradition which the Tudors adopted. It was essentially that around Christmas, a young lad was appointed as as the Lord of Misrule. And the point of this essentially was to upturn this very strict hierarchy at the Tudor court and have a more lowly, humbler servant take charge of directing and producing entertainments and revels at court throughout the festive season. It's an unusual tradition to modernize, I suppose, But the idea about behind it, I think, was that they just would get a lot of fun out of it from giving a younger and sort of less restrained and sort of more imaginative um, person at court to have full control of the festivities. And often their imagination knew no bounds or any financial constraints. Again, this was a very expensive tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, But the case study I focus on in the book is George Ferrers, who was Edward VI's Lord of Misrule for at least two years and the material is just extraordinary. I mean, I really didn't have to work very hard for, for it to make it entertaining because it they really spoke for itself. There's letters from Ferrers to um, Thomas Coworden, who was Master of the Revels, and also from Edward's Council to Thomas Coworden. Essentially, it's a long list of demands where Coworden is expected to provide just about anything that Ferrers asks for, anything that can come into his mind, not to compromise his vision or any of his ideas. He has full reign to have to ask for whatever he wants. And he's slightly juvenile, slightly drunk with power, slightly annoying, <laughs> even to the modern reader. <laughs> and um, But his incessant demands are so... It's with the spirit. He really does embody the role because the whole point of it was, isn't that funny? Isn't that hilarious that this young lad is now Lord of Misrule and is essentially able to act without deference to his seniors and to his superiors? and demand all manner of kind of pageants and pastimes to be held in his name for him and his court of misrule as it was. I just love the sources that have survived for this. And without one, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it, but I personally think that tradition should be brought back. I think it's brilliant. I would love to see someone from the younger generation having the power to decide how our streets are decorated for a year or how... The church should be decorated, or or whatever. I mean, but it's 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 unusual to modern eyes to think that. Why 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 are they doing that? That's that's un, that's weird. But it it's a lot of fun, and it really did. it made me smile a lot while I was researching and writing it.
0: <laughs> it is a lot of fun. It sounds like uh, who wouldn't want to be the Lord of Misrule?
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think that'd be fantastic. <laughs>
0: So other than the Lord of Misrule, I I really liked um, a part in the book where you talked about some games, maybe, that they played or things that they did. And one of the things that you mentioned was at the Tudor Christmas table, a game called Snapdragon.
1: Ah, yes. I really shouldn't take too much credit for this because I read this first in a book by Alison Weir. It wasn't even something I could verify properly, actually. So this is one of the two examples in the book where I was so charmed by the idea. And so it it made me smile just to think about that I had to include it, Um, which is not my usual style. I would normally go to the ends of the earth to find a source for all of these things. But sometimes it's not that straightforward. So the one or two occasions in the book um your listeners will notice I use the word apparently and it's it's basically because I could not not include the anecdote I could not not include it but I couldn't actually find the source the original contemporary source from the time and so I sort of signposted the reader apparently but this game snapdragon which was essentially this uh, a bowl of dried fruits and nuts were passed around and it was in a bowl of brandy and it was ignited it was on fire um quite tremendous it must have been quite something to see and the daring players would attempt to snatch the snacks from from the flames without burning their fingers sounds a bit dangerous <laughs> a <little laughs> bit a little bit mad um but personally i'm going to try and convince my family to take part in this this year hopefully without burning the house down but it just sounds like a lot of fun and um that was yeah that's a great example um I, it's, there are a few, it's quite fittingly for Christmas time, there are a few anecdotes like that, which are difficult to verify because you wonder if they've come through legend and and just, just sort of dissipate, uh, distinguishing between myth and legend uh, and um, what actually happened. There's so many around Christmas and, you know, it seems quite fitting, really. I tried to, as I left a fair few of them on the cutting room floor because some of them I just thought were outrageous and definitely couldn't be verified. But that, that one rings true to me.
0: I love these stories. One of the other things, and I hope I'm not like just spoiling all the like the the best points of your book.
1: <laughs> oh no, it's a book of anecdotes. You would never be able to get through them all. So please, please do.
0: One of the other parts you talked about twelfth night that the special cake was sometimes made that had a bean in it. Can you 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 have to tell the listeners about this? And then I want to understand what that really meant in the in the big picture for these people.
1: Oh well, uh, that that second part of the question might be a, a tall <laughs> order for me, because I sometimes I'll read something and I'll think, what? Hold on, <laughs> and then I'll read it again and I think, no, not making any more sense the second time around. Actually, um, but it's so interesting. Sometimes you just have to let it speak for itself and allow the reader to make their own interpretation. A lazy historian you might call me, but actually, it's some. I just it was nonsensical and well, I'll have to explain it now, won't I? Yes, but, if, uh, the Tudors loved to feast at Christmas, as they did all through the year, but Christmas especially. And often the food itself was going would double as a proper sort of party game, essentially. Um, which kind of resembles our Christmas today in terms of having games at Christmas. But on the twelfth night, yeah, there was a special cake which um was fruits, honey, spices, and flour, of course, and but baked within it was a dried bean. Um, doesn't sort of sounds like a choking hazard waiting to happen, but essentially whoever got served the bean would become king or queen of the bean now when i first read this i thought there's no way that's true this one's not going in the book not a chance uh, i just thought i want another one of those myths um but then i found the source and i was like okay um so in 1563 uh, a mary fleming a maid of honor serving mary queen of scots essentially took on the role of queen of the bean and the ambassador at mary queen of scots court seems very sort of overwhelmed and impressed by this uh, young woman Uh, and this tradition which to us might seem a bit bizarre but I suppose it's just one of those things that the Tudors did which was very fun and he writes uh, my pen staggers and my hand fails further to write Um, the queen of the bean was that day in a gown of cloth and silver her head her neck her shoulders the rest of her whole body so beset with stones that more in our whole jewel house were not to be found so essentially, they decorated this young girl up like a Christmas tree. And there she was looking quite fabulous. And she was queen of the bean. And again, another example of them upturning that strict hierarchy, which was obviously so important at court. Um, but they love they loved to see it turned on its head and to see someone in a more lowly role, like a maid of honor or a page of the chamber, suddenly become lord of misrule or queen of the bean don't ask me to explain it. I don't really fully understand it. But that's, that's my best interpretation that they love those humorous, they thought it was funny to see someone of a lower station, um, be treated with absolute reverence for a day.
0: (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) It's like they're laughing at them.
1: (laughs) Yes, I, I think it's, I think it's meant to be like a privilege like for mary that day she's going to be treated like a queen and surely she would enjoy that um that's if she didn't choke to death on the bean in the first place i mean (laughs) it's 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 there is there are a fair few of these in the book where the reader will have to use their own interpretation. I do my best to understand and to transport myself to the tutor corner and and think, yes. Okay. What's that? Um, But my, my understanding is it was just fun and they wanted it to be light and humorous and they, yeah, they're laughing at them, but I think laughing with them too as well. Let's hope so. Cause otherwise then it's
0: a little bit more sad, isn't it? A little bit mean. Yes. (laughs) Oh,
1: it it might, it might be like, um, oh, I don't know the game like a duck, duck, goose sort of thing (laughs) where, you know, you're sort of it. You've been tagged and you're it. And maybe that's what it was. But they they make it sound that that one report that I managed to find anyway, makes it sound like she would have been sort of treated more honorably than normal. Like she was the queen for the day. I I imagine Mary, Queen of Scots, probably even showed her some reverence and joined in the spirit of it.
0: Yeah, see, that's nice. I do like that part of it. (laughs) Now, you mentioned that she was um, dressed up so to speak, like a Christmas tree. And that's something that I find interesting too. Did they really have Christmas trees?
1: I think we can confidently say that they didn't. The only problem is the lack of references. It's a similar issue with the Yule log, which we assume was being, um, you know, we assume someone was chopping down a tree in the forest and dragging it in and, and lighting it in the Tudor court. But actually it's difficult to date it to the Tudor court itself. And it's the same with Christmas trees. I think most accounts now... Because one of the things I really hate sometimes with books, I'm just going to go on a little rant here, is when it's really padded with information, which isn't necessary, not necessary, not relevant. So Mm -hmm. I could have chucked this book and filled it up with pagan rituals and the origins of this. And this is what happened in this part of the world, but not in England. But I kept thinking that, you know, the readers want to know what about Tudor England and a Tudor Christmas. So I tried to keep it very restrained. Um, But my understanding is that Christmas trees originated in Germany, or at least that's what people say now. And there's a story, could be like a folk tale, really, but that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, was one one evening walking home and was so struck by the way the stars in the sky sort of shined amidst evergreen trees that he was inspired then to light some candles and put them on his own tree back home at Christmas. Um, whether or not that's true, whether or not it can be verified. It's another one of those examples where it's it could be a myth. Um, but generally speaking, I think people attribute um, to the 1520s, 1500s. F- so it is the same period as the Tudors, but just mm-hmm. not in England. Um, so again, maybe we can't really say conclusively that they didn't decorate trees. They certainly decorated with holly and ivy, and they definitely sort of decked the halls. They did decorate. It was an important occasion. There's a great anecdote in the book where um, Margaret, Queen of Scotland, is being hosted by Lord Dacre. And um, and he's so excited about her coming. And he, he it, they talk about how he hangs all these trimmings and all this ivy and holly and really decorates his house in anticipation of, of entertaining um, Margaret. So they definitely decorated. They definitely made a big fuss of Christmas. But Christmas trees couldn't quite place them at the Tudor court.
0: Okay, good. I wanted to put that to rest. So I'm I'm glad you were able to...
1: that's. I'm not sure that was very convincing, whether it's actually to rest, but I tried.
0: (laughs) Well, it was to rest enough for me, so...
1: (laughs) Great. Okay, I'll take that.
0: (laughs) One of the other things that I found interesting is there was a little bit that you had mentioned, Anne Boleyn, of course, everybody's favorite Tudor queen, and um, how she had refashioned her livery for Christmas. And I guess First of all, I hadn't even thought about that that was something that they would do. Is it, it? Maybe this is a broader question. Was it common for them to refashion livery throughout the year or was it just a Christmas thing? I'd love to know more.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So livery um, being the clothing or uniform that was worn by men and women in the Tudor royal household to sort of mark them publicly as servants was often refreshed right before Christmas. But I think it was more something that was done either quarterly or half yearly. So it wasn't the fact that it was Christmas to them that they were doing it. It was just that that was how the calendar of the year sort of fell. So it just happens to be that... Christmas in 1530, Anne Boleyn's servants were all in this new livery, which um, Anne had refashioned to have a, a motto on it, which was um, quite famously, what will be will be grumble who may, because at this time, of course, she's quite a divisive figure at court, because she is um, pursuing the king, and the king is pursuing her, and the king is not yet annulled from his marriage to the first uh, queen, Catherine of Aragon. So not to, it's it wasn't a Christmas tradition, but I did think it was important to note that not everything stopped at Christmas. Servants were paid, servants who were paid quarterly would have been paid at Christmas, and servants who um, who had to wear livery would have had their, their clothes sort of refreshed for Christmas, which maybe isn't too much of a coincidence, because as you can imagine, Christmas was a time when the Tudors had many visitors to court and were entertaining. So you don't really want your maids of honor or your gentlemen of the privy chamber to be wearing sort of some old rags from a year ago. You want them to look their best. So maybe it made sense to them to have them refreshed at Christmas for that reason, too.
0: Thank you for that. So Christmas tide, we had mentioned previously, lasted 12 days starting on Christmas. This takes us past the new year and you cover the new year in your book too, because I think often maybe it's forgotten that the Tudors didn't exchange gifts on Christmas. It was actually at the new year.
1: So the new year's day tradition or well, new year's day falls almost in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas for the Tudors, And as you mentioned, uh, they didn't exchange gifts on Christmas day like us, but they did exchange new Year um, gifts on new year's day. And The significance of that was just the same as it is for us today. It was an exchange of gifts. The fact that it happened on a different day is fairly inconsequential because it still resembles the tradition of exchanging gifts and all that comes with exchanging gifts. So there's the preparation that comes into getting a gift. You have to put some thought into it. You have to send your servants out to shop for it. You have to have, if it's it's an item of clothing, you have to have it made up. If it's an exotic animal, you have to have them brought in. Um... But yes, so the Tudors, particular so the Tudors royal, I should specify, they had ceremonies at court on New Year's Day where they exchanged gifts, um, beginning with the king and queen exchanging their gifts, and then the courtiers and councillors gifts, and then some from further afield too, generally noble men and women, and the point of the exchange was well to bring merriment, as as gifts a gifts exchange is, but it was such an important ceremony because. In terms of your own status you had to make sure that the king or queen remembered you and that they knew that you remembered them and so you what you sent was actually quite important you wouldn't want to send something too forgettable like a purse of gold um, particularly later in the tudor um, period it became more and more important and there was more intense competition to send a really good gift and so that there's that element of anxiety about whether or not your gift would be good enough and how it was going to be received and because it was done in a ceremony, it wasn't private. Anyone who was attending at court could witness how it was received and witness how it was, um, how how much it was appreciated, really. And so, and they even had cupboards and and mantelpieces sort of made up just to put the gifts on display. So, if you put if you gave something that was insignificant or not impressive enough, you might not even have made the display. You know, it, it was quite an important thing to. To really, with the Tudor's Royal, it was a lot of thought had to go into what gifts were sent. And I tried my best to put as many examples in that chapter of the more memorable and extravagant gifts, but also some of the humbler gifts too. Um, my favourite that sticks out, and I, I will never forget it, is that Henry once once received a leopard which seems a little bit um <laughs> extravagant <laughs> extravagant and a burden I would say <laughs> I mean, what, what do you do with it um but and then there's other there's other ones like rich jewels and cloves and things like that and some great examples in the book which um again material which I didn't really have to work very hard with because it it just spoke for itself it was fantastic um of someone pet- petitioning or rather soliciting um one of elizabeth's ladies in waiting for advice what would elizabeth like for christmas and th- the detail is fantastic because it really gives you an impression not only did their servants the crown servants know them so well and could advise them but also the anxiety and sort of the pitfalls of the exchange really come through and it's resembles again today. I mean, I hate gift giving. I hate trying to figure out what to give people. I'm mm-hmm. such a bad judge of character. Even the people I, I know and love in my life, I still get it wrong. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I know my mom by now, but every now and then I'll get her something and she's fighting from rolling her eyes. It was the same thing at the Tudor court. You couldn't <laughs> always get it right. And I also included a few examples where people got it wrong. So without wanting to say too much, it's it's a really mm-hmm. interesting dynamic. This book
0: is so good. I implore people to go out and order it. Where can they find your book right now?
1: They can find it exclusively on Amazon. That is, um, it's an Amazon exclusive. So, should be wherever you are in the world, you should be able to order it. Um, But yes, Amazon is where you would find it.
0: Well, perfect because we're coming up on the Christmas season right now. So, I guess we are in the Christmas season. Um, But This is a book I would assume if you go on Amazon today, you should be able to get it before Christmas. So please head on over to Amazon and look up Dr. Taft's book today. There'll be a link in our show notes. And we could talk about this probably for an hour, but I want to leave some for the book.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes, I appreciate that. Yes. And and thank you for your kind words as well. I really, I really appreciate that.
0: Well, we always love having you on the show. So just know you are always welcome back. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. It's been my pleasure, really. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudors Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudors Dynasty.